Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Welcome to the Secret Life of Cookies podcast. Today's guest is a professor of infectious diseases at the University of Oxford, Dr. John Frader. So John is the kind of guy in the infectious disease world who refers to Dr. Fauci as Tony. So I had him on to talk about monkeypox and why it has us, um, well, going bananas and whether we really should worry about it. And while we talk all things monkeypox, I make, because I'm that kind of classy gal, a savory garlicky monkey bread. Yeah, I did. Because, of course. And as we all know, garlic wards off vampires and disease. We also talk about coping with COVID, the future of infectious diseases, and how to keep people from freaking out about vaccines. Also, John shares his favorite infectious disease. And by share, I mean he tells us about it. He doesn't spread it. Anyway, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, and welcome to my kitchen, Mr. Dr. Herr Frau, no, just the Dr. Professor John Freider from what we used to call Oxford University. And now, because we're fancy and you're there, we call it the University of Oxford. John Freider is professor of infectious diseases. He's sitting at his home in beautiful, beautiful Chipping Norton, which is where all the fancy people live, except for John, meaning John is not that fancy, really. But he's super bright, aren't you, John? You sounded really posh when you said Chipping Norton. You, it was yes. like kind of having you back in England again. It was lovely. <laughs> For all the people out there, um, John and I have a long, ongoing, will we call it friendship, John? Will we call it a friendship? We've known oh, each John. other since university. Yeah, we're acquaintances. <laughs> oh, shoot. And that hurts. John and I, uh, acquaintances, go all the way back to Selwyn College, Cambridge, before he switched allegiances to Oxford. And we, I think we probably still hold the title of Selwyn College Debate Champions. So this should be interesting because now we're on the same side as opposed to now opposing sides. Well, I wouldn't call you opposing sides, but whatever. What did we debate upon? All I remember is it involved the phrase ever ready vagina. Yeah, and welcome to all, good morning to all of our viewers <laughs> yeah. out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's 20 to 8 in the evening for me with a glass of wine, so I can do this. Yeah, for you, you it's this. different, isn't it? Yeah, it's Friday yeah, afternoon. Think, Selwyn College only ever held one debate, as far as I know, because I think after our one, everyone yeah. was so shocked by the concept that it could all go so horribly wrong that it was never done again. <laughs> exactly. Um, so as reigning champions, it could be fraternity, which is great. We should have a medal or something, shouldn't we? We should, but instead, I think I'll make us something. I'm not going to quite talk about what it is yet. You have a cookie with you, a genuine and not even a biscuit. You have a cookie yeah. with you. That's not an English sort of dry biscuit that helps you with your bowel movements. That's like a real biscuit, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm stepping up here because, I mean, you know, this, this is a famous podcast. And I'm not going to come unprepared. And there's no way I was going to cook because I'm appalling at cooking. Um, but my daughter <laughs> has baked an amazing vegan and gluten-free oat chocolate chip cookie with coconut oil, oat flour, vanilla chocolate, and oat milk. No butter. It's amazing. And it tastes incredible. So, oh my um, yeah. God. so I brought something to the party. I've, I've, I'm here with something. It's incredible. And I think <laughs> most of the people on the podcast be like, please give us that recipe. So Maisie will have to share it. Thank you, Maisie. 
but I'm making, strangely enough, and I'm flinging a knife around while I'm talking, which I think probably really intimidates my guests, it's, does it? It is slightly disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, the sort of the whole Bobbit concepts coming to mind as I'm talking yes. to you. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm across the Atlantic and at safe distance. <laughs> You'd be glad, but my husband. <laughs> Just kidding, folks. I hate those kind of jokes, don't I? But I'm going to make monkey bread today. And um, the reason I want to make monkey bread is, yes, folks, because monkey pox is in the news. And I don't, there's nothing I like more than a fine infectious disease to talk about. I have been made a physician by Google. And so I'm pretty much a full-fledged doctor. You, however, got your degree from uh, someplace other than Google. Is that true? Yeah. And now you're a professor of what? infectious disease but no one's ever seen the paperwork marissa so i mean it, who knows? <laughs> i saw you studying for exams and stuff like I, that yeah I, yeah i did no oh. no so, so theoretically in principle i'm a professor of infectious diseases so yeah so i should know something about infectious diseases if, okay if, if nothing else and how did you get your start just let's give people a little bit of background about you as i slice um this gigantic piece of uh, yeast dough into slices and then i'm going it, to roll them it's, yes. it's like being interrogated. It's slightly intimidating that someone stands in front of you with a weapon and asks you <laughs> questions. Uh, if you could shine a bright light at it. <laughs> yes, I will. Um, <laughs> My ring so light. Have, <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I, I don't know how it is in, in the US, but in the UK, basically, you, you qualify in medicine. And then someone says, right, go and find something to be good at or find a specialty. <laughs> and if you're as clueless and undecided about what you want to do in life as I am and still am, you kind of you work your way around lots of different specialties, catching each one while you're there, convinced yeah. you've got each one while you're doing it, and then thinking, oh, maybe I could do this as my career. And I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I had this an amazing time when there's a hospital in London called St. Mary's, which is one of the really large teaching hospitals. And this was just when the HIV pandemic in the UK was kicking off and sort of the kind of the early, early 90s, I suppose. Um, Even though you have a young voice, you're actually... Really well, thank you. That. Yes, I, I, I'm, I'm a wizened creature. If, if the video is wrong. No, yeah, so the, 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 the voice, this, this is a voice filter everyone's listening to, by the way. So I really talk like that. No, I don't. Um, so, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so yeah, back then. So, this was, I mean, this was an amazing time to be a junior doctor. So, we were, I was working on the ward as a junior doctor, you know, kind of doing all the ridiculous hours that you did. But we had two wards that were dedicated to HIV. I think it was 24 beds on each ward, and they were full with young people my age you know, with this disease that we did not know how to treat. It was, it was an amazing, you know, humbling experience to sort of try and look after people, you know, from a condition where you really didn't have the right tests, you didn't have the right drugs. You could get people better and then they'd go out, but you'd see them again. And it was, it was you know, it was a difficult time. And so it was having an interest anyway in sort of, you know, viruses and pathogens and bacteria. This struck me at the time <laughs> as a sort of junior doctor. And that, that sounds weird, but it kind of, says a lot about doctor. where you grew up no i'm just kidding. yeah as a junior doctor <laughs> it kind of um yeah it kind of sparked my interest and i thought this is really interesting and important and so i actually kind of got into research then as well so since then i've been doing some research in hiv as well as treating and looking after people living with hiv so hiv is my real specialty and that's right. where i spend most of my time kind of doing but obviously we kind of when we consult in oxford for infection you know we, you, anything can come your way so you need to have some idea of other pathogens apart from your own favorite have you had any like sort of speaking of Selwyn graduates? Have you had any like Hugh Laurie sort of you know he was a Selwyn graduate and starred in this TV show called House? You have you had any Hugh Laurie moments where you're like, oh my god, I don't know what it is, and then you discover it's because 
of like red food coloring or something like that. The house was an infectious disease physician. Did you know that? Yes, of so course. I, yeah. So I'm you and I think sister. I think no, I think you inspired him, wasn't it? Based on your life. <gasps> Let's start that not, rumor. Not according to the <laughs> timeline, but maybe there's some weird time travel thing going on. Um, yeah, no. So, so yeah, his stuff's weird and wonderful, isn't it? It's not always like that. You do get some crazy things. It is interesting, and that's why for those of you, those of you listening who want to choose a medical specialty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, infectious diseases is really is really fascinating because you have this mixture of the kind of the weird and the wonderful from all over the world but also you can treat people at the time so it's one of the few medical specialties where actually someone can come in really sick and you can kind of get them better and send them out well and back to normal so from that point of view it has that sort of surgical angle to it you can kind of really kind of get people better which is also very attractive if you are short-minded like i am then you want to have yeah. a quick result <laughs> exactly <laughs> I mean, what has made it possible for people to be able to like, is it really just like antibiotics and antivirals and, you know, that make it possible for us to like send people back out into the world? Yeah, no, completely. And I, th I think what is amazing is most people don't realize how recent an invention antibiotics are. And this comes as a great shock to people. Right. You know, it was really, you know, kind of, we're kind of talking sort of the Second World War when really we started to actually use these properly. And before right. then, you kind of bit on a stick and sort of washed it with iodine and kind of someone put a slug on you for a while or something, you know, or rubbed you in cockroaches and kind of, you know, hope for the best. And so, I mean, it, it is crazy that we've had what it would be, now, you know, sort of 80 effective years, supposedly, of antibiotics. And we're already trying to destroy, you know, the ones that work well by overusing them and not using them properly. And, you know, it, that's another story in itself about, you know, yeah. how we're messing up these things. But yeah, the, I mean, the reason we, we can actually treat these conditions is purely because, you know, th th that amazing discovery. And then antivirals, which you might argue are a little bit more complex in the making. Oh, know, I would. Have, have really, well, I thought you would. I was waiting <laughs> for you to say that. <laughs> you know, are, are a whole sort of ne next level, because that's when you'll start actually sort of almost working on DNA and sort of interfering with how DNA works with a lot of antiviral drugs and things like that. And also acting directly against proteins within viruses. So, you know, they themselves are quite incredible. And you could argue that kind of the, the drugs that treat HIV are probably one of the kind of one of the greatest breakthroughs of the last century, just in terms of making people's lives better and making the planet a better, better place. So, you know, I mean, it's incredible what they do. Do the antiviral drugs that are used for HIV now to great success, I know, have they informed the development of other antivirals that we use now? Yeah, I think I think they probably do. I mean, I think the thing is they're all very specific. So when you make a drug, like a drug targeting HIV, it really just has to target HIV and ideally nothing else. But actually, when it comes to it, you can repurpose some of these drugs. So some of the HIV drugs work really well against a virus called hepatitis B that affects mm. the liver. And, you know, and that, that works well against those. And I think the principles behind them you know, yeah. how do you make a drug in principle to target something like a virus, which kind of these weird and wonderful structures, I mean, they're not even alive, really, viruses, they're just sort of coils of DNA wrapped up in protein. Someone described them as a piece of bad news wrapped in protein, you know, that's kind of what it is. <laughs> so, so, so protein isn't always good for you people. Um, but people are so into it, but yeah. They okay. are, yeah. yeah. You don't want to be measuring this stuff out in powder, I tell you. So understanding how you target something like that, which isn't alive, you know, mm -hmm. takes a whole different category of drugs. And, you, and that's you can then kind of use that to think about lots of different viruses as well. I'm dealing with yeast right now, which is alive. I, I, I'm sorry I'm to hear that. There is, there is some medication, <laughs> Marissa, for that as well. Yeah. And I was, um, can we talk about that after the yeah, show? Yeah, afterwards. Um, <laughs> I think it must be a problem with some bakers dealing with yeast a lot. But anyway, yes. Um, I what did are you doing? A I, child, I, doing Candida. Something. What? 
Don't you think Kenny I, I, would be I, a beautiful... Actually, I knew... I knew, well, I didn't know no. her. This, so this is secondhand, but I hope it's true. I pray it's true. My very good friend had a girl in her class called Candida Beaver, which I think was possibly <laughs> the, <laughs> one of the greatest names of all time. However, we are, we are getting distracted. I, I read about an article about um, a family in the New York Times, and this is true as opposed to your story, which is... Oh. Um, I think it's true. Yeah, no, sure, probably. A girl named Gingivitis and another one named <laughs> Yeah, right. It was in the New York Times, so oh, it that's must true. be true. Didn't yeah. you write for them? Yeah. Oh, so that your point is what? <laughs> yeah, I think it's fair made. Um, so I'm here um, taking pieces of probably a yeasty dough, um, kind of an egg dough, like almost a brioche dough with a touch of sugar in it. And instead of making this ultra sweet, I don't think you have things like monkey bread in England. But Can usually I just you put take... you up on something. Yeah. Where you say brioche is really weird. You mean brioche? Brioche. 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 And you brioche. say brioche. Brioche, isn't it? I, I guess you're closer to France. What do I know? You had someone on the other day saying brioche, and it was just, oh, it's just wrong, isn't it? Well, it's folks, please phone, please phone in <laughs> to the number on your screen and please pronounce brioche, brioche for yeah, us. I, I'd like to um, hear what your friends think. Yes. You say brioche, and I say, no, I say brioche. Anyway, I am making a dough. Usually, monkey bread is like you take balls of dough and you roll it in cinnamon sugar and then you drizzle pounds of butter on it and then you glaze it with like a caramel sauce and then you invert it and it bakes I mean it bakes and you invert it and you cover with more icing and even talking about it my pancreas like begins to twinge a little (laughs) so I've made a savory one and I'm using olive oil for the pesto I'm going to take balls of dough that I'm rolling around pieces of mozzarella cheese and I'm going to dip them in a pesto and then some Parmesan cheese. So we're going to go the fat route, but not the heavy sugar route. So that's probably good for us, right, doctor? It looks amazing. I'm, I'm just <laughs> absolutely gutted that I'm not, never going to be able to try this. Unless you can send me some. Can we kind of get courier it? I can fax it moment. to you. Can you, can well, you fax it? Yeah. <laughs> Except the balls. That works, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, it's really popular now. Faxing. Also, how's your beeper? So we're here making monkey bread because the tired world exhausted by covid is going oh my god what do you mean monkey pox and i think part of it is people are absolutely entranced with the name monkey pox let's be fair is monkey pox going to be something i should worry about i mean that's the question marissa that everyone is asking <laughs> isn't it and it's and you've yeah and you've just asked it so it's really good so, i mean just in terms of a time stamp I, so we're, we're, I don't know if we're allowed to do this but i mean this is this is friday the 20th of may and i'm, I'm yes. saying that for a reason because you know, in, in the unfolding of infectious, let's call it a breakout for the moment, rather than a mm-hmm. pandemic or an epidemic, days are critical. And I think I was on a seminar 48 hours ago, and the situation then is even slightly different to how it is now. But just in terms of adding things up, there are now 100 cases across Europe, a number of different countries affected. I think you, there are cases in the US. I think there's a potential case in New York as well. There's one yes. in Boston. Australia have a case. Canada yes. has a number of them. and. Apparently, the rates doubled in Britain overnight. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the numbers have, have doubled here overnight. I think it took from 10 to sort of 20. And, and so we'll see kind of what happens. First of all, this isn't COVID. So I think that's the first thing just to say. <laughs> but secondly, monkeypox is more, more endemic within Africa. And there are two different strains, sort of Central Africa and West Africa. Everyone will become experts on this over the next few days because information oh. is so available. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're probably sort of a page or two ahead of everybody else, you know, in reality, because, you know, we weren't really thinking about this fortnight ago. 
there, there is an amazing website where you can kind of track horrible pathogens around the world. <gasps> so you can see, you can see if there's some sort of plague cropping up in a village somewhere. And so, and, and it highlights. So, so actually, if you, if you go onto that website, a friend of mine was telling me earlier today, actually, there has been cases of monkeypox around Central Africa for a few weeks. So you, you know, there has been some out there. And essentially what we're seeing is, is, is the effect of a transmission to essentially people who don't have immunity to this anymore, is, is what is most likely. One of the arguments is that, you know, when back in the day when everyone had a smallpox vaccine, yeah, you know, you were protected because smallpox vaccine, you know, about 85% protective against monkeypox. You know, that was, I think the last vaccine in the UK was given in the 1970s, so 1971, the population sort of level. So, you know, that's a long time since no one's been vaccinated. Is it the kind of thing I would have needed a booster for, say, say if you were born before 1971 or something? Well, that's, yeah, so that's a good question. I'm, I'm not quite sure because I mean, smallpox is eradicated, so it became a non-issue. So I think it all depends on kind of how they were kind of managing the rollout of vaccination at the time. But what is clearly the case is that most people walking around the streets today won't have any immunity against smallpox. So if something like monkeypox comes along, it's going to be a problem now when it wouldn't have been previously. So that is one argument as to why we're seeing cases of it. I think it does seem, talking to those who, who know about these things, to be behaving slightly differently to sort of normal monkeypox cases in, in, in the fact that kind of there seems to be greater numbers, greater kind of diversity across different countries. Transmission, people are still working that out. There seem to be certain groups of people who are, are coming forward with this. You know, um, I think that there are clearly people who've come from Africa who've been infected with monkeypox, and that, that's a clear route. But there are also people who haven't, and there's no history of travel, certainly in, in some of the, uh, the cases reported recently. And in some of those, it, the, the story has been around the sexual contact and men having sex with men and people presenting at sexual health clinics in, in the UK with this. And so I think there's sort of physical contact here rather than sexual transmission. I think it's important to say this is different. This is not a sexually transmitted disease. This is right. something where you have pieces of skin touching, effectively. And if someone <laughs> has monkeypox on their skin, then they pass it on that way. So I think probably that is what we are seeing is there's a most likely point of transmission. But then, you know, it may be possible that it's spread through breath as well. Certainly, there may be, may be a respiratory component to it. I think we're kind of finding out what happens. So yes, it is early days, and it'll be very interesting to see what the next 48 hours and beyond that hold in terms of how serious this needs to be and whether we need to start sort of getting smallpox vaccines ready for people or not. You used a, a wonderful phrase. I mean, I think it was the people who are coming forward with it, because I think there's a worry. I, I, my concern is that people are going to start calling it like, oh, it's a gay man's disease, right? Because there's like a sexually transmitted element of it. And some of the people who've come forward have been men who've had sex with men. Um, parsing it down to that makes it a much more, it's a much more sensible way of talking about it, especially in such early days. Not that people ever like let things get out of control in the media or like overblow things or, you know, try and certainly not uh, in Marissa, my country. Uh, <laughs> oh, and here, you know, this, this is the, you know, I mean, working it, 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 with people living with HIV for such a long time, stigma is part of the condition, and it's awful. And it's and people love to blame. I don't know what it is at the moment. People love to blame, don't they? You've got to be angry about something and point a finger, you know. And you know who caused this? Where does it come from? And you know, you take each case on its own merits. And you know, infections are infections. You just need to deal with the people and get them better and, and, and work as well as you can do. And yes. At the moment, this does seem to be a condition which is predominantly affecting men who have sex with men coming forward in through sexual health clinics. But let's just see what, what turns up. As soon as you start pointing a finger and attributing some sort of value 
to a pathogen, then you're being idiotic. And there's already there's press here that just jumps on this sort of thing. And it's just right. like, you know, the bad old days of HIV where, you know, people pointing fingers and, you know, it gets ridiculous. And we, that's going to be nipped in the bud straight away because it helps nobody. Well, we have bad old days that still float around this country of Asian Americans being targeted as the vectors of COVID. And in the early days of COVID, people, I mean, it's still happening too, but in the early days of COVID, people didn't go to Chinese restaurants. People would, I mean, there've been Asian Americans attacked in New York City as of a couple months ago, a month ago. So there's, I think there's a lot of anger and a lot of anxiety that is uh, left over from COVID today, <laughs> the today in obvious statements. But I think that that's what raises our anxiety about monkeypox. But I, I, I um, wonder if there are other things, you know, because I like to be that way. If there are other things I should probably be more worried about. If I was going to stay awake at night from between like two, like if that time in the night, like between two and four, when I really like to ruminate, what should I worry about? Between two and four is your sort of infection couple of hours yeah, where you worry about that's what, when what I like to spend that. You, sh- you should have yeah. shouldn't cheat. Um, between four and five, I tend, tend to worry about my family, but usually two to four is pretty solid sort of medical issues. So, you know, I mean, COVID's <laughs> still out there, isn't it? I mean, COVID is still a priority before we start worrying. I mean, yeah, let's take my point seriously, but you know, get, let's get our priorities right. I think in the UK, the last figures, it's still like something one in 45, one in 50 people in the UK still, you know, have COVID at the moment. It's, it's out there and needs to be sorted out still. And that's not, it's not gone away yet. So let's get that priority sorted first. You know, monkeypox is an infection that needs to be dealt with. Will it turn into something huge? Historically, it's not as transmissible. Even if you catch it, certainly it is, it, it kind of gives you symptoms for three weeks. You know, the rash can be very nasty but heals, you know, and, and, you know, the worst case scenario is you can get nasty scarring associated with that. You can't live that down or talk that down. But, you know, this is not something that's going to kill a normal, healthy person. So, you know, it's a completely different world. And there's already a vaccine out there, you know. Right. And uh, many countries have been stockpiling smallpox vaccines just in case someone wanted to use smallpox as a weapon. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. is one of them. You know, so there, there is plenty of smallpox vaccines around there, probably. <laughs> you know, so, you know, should it become a problem, it will be manageable. I think it's just a question of the, of the people, the right people in the right jobs, being sensible, making sure they're doing their surveillance properly uh, and, you know, no hysteria and just working out exactly what's going on, coming up with some pragmatic rules to follow and, you know, acting on them as need be. There's clearly more of it around than you you would expect. I mean, that that's, we, we can be kind of clear about that. So we just need to know what what that means in terms of, if we have this conversation in a week's time, it'll could be a very yeah. different conversation, you know. <laughs> that was called nervous laughter. My question is, I still see COVID as an issue where I live. The cases that have been, um, that people have talked about, or, you know, have a, the cases at my son's high school have been 16 people, eight people, 12 people. And that's every single day over the past mm. couple of weeks. It's a lot of kids who are willing to, one, say, get tested for it, two, say they have it, right? I mean, there must be a number of people who think it's allergies this time of year or something. And recently in this country, we've been very much like, oh, masks, huh? Has it been the same way in England or is England, are you just, just better than we are? Well, I, I'm not going to answer that question, but I'll answer the first <laughs> <laughs> So I think what happened in the UK, as our sort of whatever wave it was, I can't even remember, third wave, fourth wave dipped and started Mm. to come down. And then we switched through to sort of the Omicron variants, which in general terms were not causing a severe illness. 
I think the nation, and I can't speak for the nation, but it kind of got the impression that the nation as a whole went, right, we're done now. And the mask came off in one great ceremonial act almost overnight. And so now people really aren't wearing masks at all. And there's a few left, but um, people are going to shops. People are kind of behaving pretty much as normal as, mm-hmm. as they were before. And, you know, I think there's a sort of psychological healing that's occurring with all this as well, you know, just the need to carry on. I fact, they couldn't cope with them to do this anymore. And I think we're quite a bloody-minded country anyway. I, I'll yeah. probably get pillory for saying, but, you know, so I, I, think we're, 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 I think there was a need to say, right, we're done and ready to kind of cope with what happens next. So, yeah, I mean, people are kind of keeping an eye on numbers and things. And actually, things are still heading in the right direction, but still lots of people have got it. You yeah, know, and there's still plenty of it around. Schools are disrupted, workplaces are disrupted because you have to isolate still, obviously, even if you're not unwell. So that in itself is disruptive. Do you think that Britain, I mean, I have all sorts of thoughts about how America handled the start of COVID. And I wonder if you could, like, let's say you were like the, what do they call it? Like the grand wizard of medicine. Isn't that what, how you have in Britain? Like we have a surgeon general and you have like the grand wizard, like Merlin or something, right? I'm shocked for words, Marissa. <laughs> A grand wizard of medicine. I love it. I wish there was. That sounds really good. I'd like to be the grand wizard of medicine. Sadly, I never will be. That's, uh, no, I mean, I think the thing is that there are, there are plenty of people who spent a lot of time thinking about this, you know, who will have much more valid opinions. It's still kind of controversial. There's still a lot of people who are very angry about how it was run in the UK at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And there may be good arguments for that. And I think it needs to be looked at very closely about what we did. Did we do it well? Could we have done things differently? Did we act fast enough? And I think asking those questions and just reflecting on what we did, and in the, it's, it's easy in retrospect, just saying in the heat of the moment, you know, what would you have done differently if you could do that again? And I think that I, th- I think there's a lot to learn, and I think certainly there are ways. W- there were certainly mistakes made in this country that I think we would reflect on, just in terms of the number of people who ended up dying with COVID could have been impacted, and we, our numbers were pretty appalling early on. Um, which was only sort of slightly a bit risky by the fact that we got the vaccines going quickly. But if we hadn't had the vaccines going quickly, we'd have, we'd have really been in a bad place, I think. The first vaccine or primary vaccine came out of Oxford. As it, Did you have anything to, like, did you know the people who were working on that? I mean, how did that come about? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the people the people who working on Andy Pollard, Sarah Gilbert, Tess Lamb, um, I mean, they were sort of part of the sort of this Oxford vaccine group, um, Jenna Laboratories. They were amazing, really, in what they did in terms of, I mean, they had a vaccine ready, a sort of plug and play vaccine already for coronaviruses. So they had a, mm-hmm. a MERS vaccine ready. So essentially, it was a question of taking MERS out of this and popping SARS-CoV-2 in. And um, the story is that kind of my friend Tess Lamb kind of designed the, the, the vaccine in her pajamas at her kitchen table one evening. And the next day they started making it. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was literally that quick. And so and, and they were hiring private jets to get the reagents they needed. It was incredible. The, the rollout of making this happen quickly was breathtaking and a huge credit to, to, to the fact they're able to do it. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it's, it, it was quite an achievement. Maybe I should cook with her like on her kitchen table. I mean, this sounds like it must be. <laughs> yeah, so in, <laughs> in my clinic room, in the clinic where I, where I do my HIV clinic, it's, it's the same building where they do the vaccine trials. And I have the chair in my clinic room where the first ever corona vaccine was given um, to a recipient. So, yeah. It's a... You have to take a photograph and post it to go along with it. Yeah, I should do. I should do. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's a, yeah, that's a great that's very moment. notable. Yeah, make sure you someone writes that on the chair so it's not like, oh, I'll put this out with your rubbish. I was lucky enough to go to um, the Nobel Institute, not to collect anything, mind you, just oh, as a tourist. Yes. Um, Thanks for being clear about and, that. 
yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and I, was, I was there with my son and it was amazing but they've got this ca- coffee shop and in the coffee shop there's all these lovely old wooden chairs but if you pick up one of the chairs and turns it upside down they get all the nobel laureates to sign one of the chairs and so you you literally can go to this coffee shop and you turn a chair upside down it's got six or seven signatures of the nobel laureates and it's amazing these old sort of rickety wooden chairs there's a it's just an old tradition that they do in the coffee shop there. It's amazing. So you kind of walk, when no one's looking, kind of tipping all the chairs up, going, who's that? Who's that? Yeah. That's a little known fact and absolutely kind of bonkers. I mean, yeah, it's like, brilliant. Yeah, thank you for all your work in physics. Could you want to scribble no, on the bottom of this chair? Exactly. Yeah, it's brilliant. I was wondering, I think one of the reasons everyone likes to be like talking about monkeypox, another one of the reasons is, I think we're so worried that there's going to be another epidemic that's going to trample everything you know that's just going to ruin our lives again i think people have such sort of ptsd about of how their the last couple of years went that the idea of something new coming you know and i think we're all a little like beating around the head and neck as far as morale is concerned are we capable and by we you can answer for all of britain or all of the world are we capable of dealing with another health crisis I was thinking about that earlier. We're kind of attuned to, we've been living with this for so long that kind of the world is a place where there's a pandemic happening. You know, that is just your experience of normal living, isn't it? You know, right. so part of it is just kind of, it, it's in the sort of the kind of the, the atmosphere around you, you just live in the context of a pandemic. So there's a part of us, and again, I won't be wrong, but there's a part of us, I think, that's kind of waiting for the next one anyway. As you just said, there's an assumption that, you know, we're going to have to be dealing with something else because everything's so awful that something awful will happen. So I think that's why, you know, as soon as someone mentions another virus coming along, you know, the hair trigger goes off and everyone's sort of already going, oh, my God, this is it. This is it. And it's it. It may turn into nothing. It may turn into something. We just have to be sensible. But I think you're right. And I think if something was to happen again, the impact, you know, I think psychologically would be enormous. I think, as you say, there's the, the mental health impact anyway of COVID has been huge. If you just suddenly mm-hmm. say to someone, there's something else now, people. That that has a whole other layer of complexity, which I think is exactly what you're sort of hinting at. So, yeah, yeah, and I think we just need to be very cautious about how that is managed by the people who make those sort of decisions. Are the people ready to be able to help make those decisions? I mean that, like, we're still not getting, like, straight advice from the CDC here about, oh, should I get a booster? Well, you should get a booster if you were born on a Tuesday, but maybe not if it was Tuesday mm-hmm. evening. You know, it's a, it all seems a little bit vague. I, I mean, I talked to Doc other physicians other than you and they aren't quite sure what to do whether people over 50 should get it a second booster you know or whatever so how i am not the expert on this marissa and it's very interesting <laughs> there are far better people you can have on here to talk about this okay I mean, I think see ya oh, no. <laughs> i'll be off now i'm gonna have my wine and my cookie um, <laughs> i think we follow the data i mean i think there's lots of data coming out all the time, looking at immune responses in different groups of people, different ages, men, women, you know, people who have got immune compromise, people from different backgrounds, you know, and you you can very accurately measure, you know, whether vaccines are still making good immune responses. And I think those data can then be correlated with protection from vaccination. And that's the information that's going to be used, you know, to make these sort of public health decisions. So there is data out there and it just needs to be, we just need to make sure the right people are looking at it. And um, that decisions are made for the right reasons. So it shouldn't be yeah. done in the dark. But, you know, I think there are some things we just don't know yet because we haven't got the data. I think that's really hard for people to get. That's a, you know, it's sort of, I wish people understood science better, right? So that when we had the 
when the vaccines were t- brought onto the market, it didn't turn into this sort of, oh, it's got DNA, it's going to change your DNA, and and uh, it can you can't get pregnant, or you're, there are going to be mutations in you. It takes over, and yeah. next to you know, it's almost as wacky as Bill Gates, you know, putting chips into my brain, which happened a long time ago, and I've seen no difference in my Wi-Fi service. Um, <laughs> You do buy a lot of Microsoft products, don't you? Yeah, she said, never having owned one. Is there a similar problem in Britain with the like lack of education? Lack, pardon the word, on how science works, that it isn't like suddenly it's fixed. Yay. It's not like a light switch. I'm trying to think about how, how you say this sort of thing properly, because I think it is complicated. I don't want to sound judgmental, but I think you know, I think even between two scientists, one won't necessarily understand what the other one's doing because a lot of this stuff is so complicated and so detailed right. that when you then try and roll that out into a public arena and try and, you know, make sure you can inform people properly. Um, I don't think it's, I mean, you talk about people, people do use this phrase that people aren't educated, but I think you have to be careful because, you, you know, some of this stuff is so sort of high-end, cutting-edge science that you wouldn't expect people to know about it. And yet we have to use it and we have to sort of em- employ it in, in everyday places like vaccinating huge numbers of people so that's when you really it does really become important to get the public health messages across engaging people really early in research so you, you know in the work that we do we, we kind of work really closely with people living with hiv at the very beginning saying what questions should we be asking how should we plan our research and i think by doing that by getting engaging with communities really early that's something that the, the, the field of hiv particularly has been fantastic at working closely with people who are affected by this and where the research is sort of designed to, to kind of help them in the long run you know and it's uh, rather than this idea that you know there's some distant research lab in a shiny building up on the hill somewhere that's working on its own i think really what scientists need to learn is that you kind of we need to be working really closely with our communities you know from the very beginning explaining what we're doing asking people if they want us to be doing that you know as well you know because people will have opinions too and making sure that, and in that way, then when, when, when things do roll out, we can kind of get rid of some of the sort of the, the craziness that does happen and, and, and the anger and, and, the, and the sort of sometimes misguided opinions that actually slow things down. And the NMR vaccine is a classic example of that. You know, we still see, we see measles. We should not see measles at all. You know, that's crazy. You know, so some of these things can be really harmful. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good point. I think it's a really good idea, this idea of like talking to the communities. Do you think the NHS is ready for it? I I do because I think the I, I I will stand by the NHS forever. I think the NHS is absolutely fantastic, you know. And if you're sick in this country, the NHS will look after you, you know. And it's um, I, it is something we are very proud of over here, and it works. It works, you know. There there are, there are problems, you know. Every system has problems, you know. Whether you're paying for it at, at the shop floor or, or whether you're paying through insurance or through taxes, you know, everything is going to have an issue, and there's always going to be complaints. But at the end of the day, if you get sick here, you, you will be looked after. And I think that's something, you know, that those of us who work in it, you know, at all levels, you know, and, and you know, the people who use it is something we're very proud of. And it is one of the political hot potatoes. If someone tries to get rid of the NHS, however much people moan about it, and people always, you know, want to moan about it, you try and take it away, people will be up in arms. You know, it matters that much. So, you know, and in this country, working. people say, oh, it's socialism. Ooh, commie. You know, and it's like, well, do you want to pay $8,000 to have an ingrown toenail, you know, taken care of? Okay, I guess you do. I hope for a day when our country wises up and can embrace it. I don't know how people afford, most people can't afford good medical care here. Most people end up in debt. Obviously, there's great things going on here, but it just ends up costing people a lot of money. Yeah, and that's the difference, isn't it? 
one of the uh, great American uh, epidemiologists, or one of the great ones in the world, is a woman named Laurie Garrett, and once a guest on my show. And she she is concerned about the next bird flu coming down the path. Any thoughts about that? I love the way you picked up the knife as you said that and held bird it. Bird flu. <laughs> <laughs> and in Sorry. my backyard. Like, in my... Is, is, is there a right answer, Marissa? Is, is that what you're um, yeah, flu is just always hovering on the horizon, isn't it? As something that could do something unusual and something interesting. And I think there are so many flu strains in other animals, you know, birds being one of them, that the, the potential for a significant mutation to occur in the future is, is, is clearly out there. And that's absolutely right. You're, you're, you're friends hit the nail on the head it's probably something you know in terms of long-term planning that we need to be very aware of yeah she also helped consult to the movie contagion so you know (laughs) that'll be your next job you have always seemed to me a really sort of laid-back sanguine sort of guy and you know this podcast has sort of shows that up you know you're like yeah yeah whatever are there things that you worry are on the horizon that we should be a lot more worried about one and the second question is what are you personally really afraid of? <laughs> um, I, I think probably, you know, if you were to take a step back and, and, and think what are the real threats to us at the moment, it, it's around public health. It's around sort of diet, sugar, the way we look after ourselves at the moment, the rise of diabetes, obesity, you know, things like that. Mental health, you know, I think they're probably the things that are, are going to take the greatest cumulative toll in terms of quality of life moving forward. You know, yes, there, there may be some viral outbreak at some point in the future. You know, there have been in the past and there will be in the future. But, you know, t- in terms of day to day, what is it that's going to slowly grind us down <laughs> as a species? It, it's those sort of things, I think, you know, the, the way we've changed the way we live lifestyles of, of, of you know sitting at computers all day in offices rather than being outside or not getting exercise you know it, it sounds mundane and idiotic to say stuff like that and i could probably phrase it better but i think you know what i'm trying to say i think that it, it's 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 that sort of general sort of healthy general healthy living approach that we've i think we've become quite bad at you know i spend days sometimes just sitting at a desk at a computer writing stuff that's not you know that's not good for you is it? that's not good for us no um, you should be standing I, in a kitchen with a knife that's what <laughs> flinging around sugar and butter yeah. and oh. well that's the exception but, you know you've got to have an exception every now and then marissa and you're the exception <laughs> everything in moderation um yeah exactly but I, I think that's actually a very sensible i no, that was so condescending I've always admired you, Marissa. Actually, Thank you. <laughs> I think actually, John, um, you're probably right. Is that good? Is that really like passive? that'll do? That'll. I, I, I'm usually I'm usually not right. It's just because you're asking me questions. I'm giving you answers. So um. <laughs> no, but I think it's the, the everyday things that are wearing us down, as you just said, that really are the things that we need to be concerned about, right? I mean, yes, monkeypox sounds scary, and yes, there are bird flus and. The past two and a half years have been horrific and don't seem to really have some end to them, right? I mean, it's a very, it's very hard to slow this, the COVID truck down. I don't know. I'm, I'll work on my analogies, but um, I just want to um, interrupt myself for a second. Speaking of obesity and sedentary life, lifestyle, I'm going to show it to you. But here, I've been making all these little balls, filling them with mozzarella. Really yeah, I have. It keeps my ner- the nervous hands. Um, rolling them in a pesto that I made from basil and sun-dried tomatoes, a lot of garlic. Uh, basil. Basil, basil and tomato. 
Basil. Basil. Sorry, sorry to anybody who's not listening to Faulty Towers. And I just like popped yeah. their eardrums. And I've sprinkled more Parmesan cheese around it as well. Just to sort of, you know, glue. Parmesan cheese is a glue. glue. Uh, unfortunately, it's probably, don't they call like cholesterol, like a glue inside my veins, my arteries. <laughs> so that's what I'm making. I'm then going to bake it and probably serve it with, I don't know, tomato sauce. Martha. <laughs> <laughs> We can just mock each other's accents for the next 10 minutes, if you like. We can do that, can't we? Absolutely. I have to, after this, I'm going to go mow the lawn. You, you, yeah. you, you, sound, you do that very well. It's like it's almost as if I was married to one. I was it's educated almost, there you, briefly. Briefly, ever so briefly. briefly and, yeah. and anybody who's listening is like, yeah, Martha. What will you be doing on Monday morning when you head into the infectious disease arena? Well, I, well, so, I mean... Cup of coffee, would, cup of tea. How do you start your day as an infectious <laughs> disease professor? Nice cup of tea, <laughs> yes. Mm. Well, I think it'll be interesting that there's a kind of a regular check-in on a Monday morning to see what's happened over the weekend, it now being Friday evening. And I think we will see, you know, if there are cases. And obviously, the interest at the moment is, you know, how fast monkeypox is spreading and, you know, where the cases are going to be. And I think, you know, the weekend is going to be an interesting time because the the virus doesn't know it's a weekend. So um, we will find out by Monday, you know, if there has been a substantial rise in the numbers when we get into work. But, you know, there are clearly people over the weekend keeping an eye, a close eye on things anyway because we've already had massive sort of policy rollouts of what you do for an infected case, where they're all going to go, what units they're going to be kept on, if you diagnose someone, how you're going to do the diagnostics because making a diagnosis is itself not straightforward. You know, um, it's partly clinical, but you need to get the right tests done. So they all need to be kind of prepared and everyone needs to be taught how to do them. So that's all happening at the moment. Those wards that are going to be looking after people with monkeypox are are, are being sort of identified and allocated. So that people Mm -hmm. know where to go and where they need to be referred. And also then what to do in terms of kind of case finding. If you have a positive case, how you kind of then try and find out where the contacts have been. So that stuff's all up and running and, you know, in action, as I'm sure it is in your country as well. And so we will see, you know, over the next kind of day or two, how that unravels. And hopefully it'll sort of peter out and, you know, not turn into anything. But, you know, we will see, won't we? I won't put you on the spot with this question, but I'm going to give you... Um, uh, You're going to anyway, aren't you? No, I'm not. I would never okay. do that. Not, yeah. so I'm not, this is not gotcha journalism. But your extra credit, credit question, your extra credit question, your extra credit question is, what is the most weirdest fascinatingest infectious disease that you can think of you don't have to answer now i just want you to like hit the books this weekend you know like the one that like no i can tell you always I can tell you there's you a can? great one okay yeah no okay. There's, 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 so <laughs> right the problem with answering this question is when you talk about a pathogen that's amazing that pathogen actually harms people you know yeah, so that, you have that, to was take, my, that was just a little yeah, yeah. You have to take that into context. So, but if you if you do this from a purely objective point of view, there's an amoeba called Meglaria fowleri, which lives in warmish waters, spring waters, and it has this bizarre thing that if you get it in your nose, it crawls up your nose, and there's there's tiny little holes in the t- between your nose and your brain where the nerves from your nose go through, and it goes through there, and then it eats your brain. Basically, it kind of digests the front of your brain, and it's really weird. You can swallow this. You can take a cup of this amoeba and drink it all and you'll be absolutely fine you won't notice a thing but if it gets in your nose then no one survives and it is a really weird and unusual you know organism so you wanted something weird and wacky 
So there you go. Yeah. I've given you. I do. Th- I think I've no surprise. I've heard of that. And I think we actually do get cases of it. Uh, every you do. You summer do. And in fact, the, in the, you, the US is what? Yeah. So, so in the UK, I think there was one case from a puddle back in the 1970s or something, because we had a warm summer, which we, we, which is unheard of here, as you can imagine. It was warm enough yeah. for this thing to come out the soil. For us, it's, 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 it's something unheard of. But I think actually in the US and particularly in Australia as well, it's something that is, is, is not uncommon. So you kind of, you guys may be a bit more familiar with that. Ugh. It's nice to think about. Um, and on that you note, did, you uh, did ask to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, uh, have a great weekend. Yeah. Or as you like to say, stay out of, there's no chance there's a warm puddle anywhere in Britain right now. Well, it's, who knows? I'm looking out the window now. It's, what is it now? It's uh, half past eight in the evening. It's all light, blue skies. Who knows? England may be on the turf. Could be a nice summer. The Swifts are here. Do you have Swifts? Yeah, we have Swifts here too. Yeah. Yeah. So the Swifts have arrived. They arrived about four days ago. So it's always very exciting when the Swifts turn up. So uh, they've made it from Africa. Yeah, they have this incredible journey from Africa all the way up, yeah. um, stopping along in like the same places every year, and then they come to yeah. your house. And they don't land. This is the amazing thing. They stay in the sky. Like if they if they land on the ground, they can't take off again. So um, they just they live in the sky, which is amazing. So, who, so I guess evolutionarily, like who? Which did they see a bird that couldn't take off then? And they're like, whoa! Did you see Larry down there? He cannot take yeah. off. Yeah. You know, let's let's just stay up in the sky. I think it's better for us. do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they probably worked it out quite quickly. Whoops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's uh, just leave Larry there. We got to move. Larry the Swift. It's been great talking to you. <laughs> Thank you, Marissa. <laughs> it's, it's been great as well. It's been really lovely sitting here in England talking to you in your kitchen. Thanks for joining me and my guest, Professor John Frader. You can follow me and get the recipes for the podcast on my Substack, Marissa Rodkoff at Substack.com. And on behalf of Dr. Frader and I, please wash your hands and have a safe week.